Hi buddies, it's Kelsey here with a quick PSA. We are taking a little break over the holidays, and so while we typically release episodes every two weeks, your next Educated Messes episode will be coming on January the 7th, 2021, the first Thursday in the new year. And we just wanted to say thank you so much for all the support, and we hope you have a wonderful December and rest of your 2020 and holidays, and stay safe. And if you miss us over that period, I don't want to tell you what to do, but you could go back and listen to previous episodes, maybe missed one. Maybe you could just like go on our Instagram and like talk to us via DMs. All of those things are open to you. We love you. Bye. Welcome to Educated Messes, a podcast to help you sift through the bullshit around work, well-being, and relationships. We'll ask questions, seek answers, and share experiences to help you navigate the messier parts of life. Because trial and error is a lot easier when we do it for you. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm Kyla, and today we're talking about coping with stress and emotional exhaustion. Um, This felt pretty relevant to us as we head into the winter months, and in BC, we're dipping into a second lockdown. I know things have been getting a little funky elsewhere, too, so (laughs) to put it lightly. Uh, So (laughs) we're trying to keep it lighthearted, but shit is hitting the fan. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a difficult time to want to record something and and be like, you know, upbeat because it doesn't feel super genuine, but (laughs) I think we can try. (laughs) But just know we're struggling, too. Yes. Laughter is good for you, though. Yeah, I think this will help me, honestly. It's like a little therapy (laughs) session. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think that the reason why we kind of wanted to lump a few of these things together is because I think they're super related to one another. And I think that even people who maybe like haven't experienced a lot of anxiety in the past or like maybe not even the type of people who like feel stressed often. I think that this year has kind of been an anomaly where a lot of people have felt sort of the events of the world are impacting their day to day. And so, yeah, I just think it's relevant and we'll kind of talk about how stress and anxiety and even like COVID affect our like emotional exhaustion and and what that looks like. Yeah. So to start off, I can kind of talk about what emotional exhaustion means. And so emotional exhaustion um, has been defined as caring too much for too long. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the components of burnout. And so burnout would essentially be like emotional exhaustion, decreased sense of accomplishment, depersonalization. There's a couple different versions of what burnout looks like, and we're going to do a burnout episode soon. So we'll save some of that. But essentially, that emotional exhaustion is just coming from that continued sense of drain and not being able to re-up at any point. And so that's something that I think a lot of people deal with on a regular basis, just being people who maybe are like have a stressful job or have a family or these different parts of life that take up a lot of time and energy. I think what's unique about this year is a lot of people are feeling emotional exhaustion from 
a lot of external factors. And so we've talked about this year, and you might have seen this even in the news, about people getting compassion fatigue, which is essentially when people start to almost get indifferent um, to people's appeals for support or even just the news when it gets really hard to watch because Mm – the frequency of those things happening is so much that it's hard to engage with it or to get emotionally involved because we we're getting a little desensitized to it. Yeah. That feels super relatable <laughs> and kind of was reminding me of something that I heard about a while ago and then again more recently. It's called a lotus of control and you can either have an external one which means that you feel like life is happening to you Or you can have an internal one, which means that you feel like you're kind of in control of what happens and how you, I guess, like move about the world and, you know, the direction your life goes in. And I think something that I personally have been feeling a lot lately, and I mean, it makes sense, but I think my lotus of control feels pretty external lately Mm -hmm. and probably this year in general, just because I mean, it is an external factor. The pandemic Mm -hmm. is not something that's within my control, but it's also not happening to me, which Mm -hmm. is something that I have talked with my therapist about before. And I I have to keep reminding myself that like, I can be grumpy and mad about this and it's not going to change it. So Mm -hmm. maybe we can like, you know, figure out a way to make do, I guess. Mm Totally. I think that's been our intention behind some of our like finding joy and uncertainty episodes has been I I don't want to say like not really trying to put a positive spin on it because I don't think that that's necessary really, but yeah. trying to do exactly that. Find joy in the midst of everything that's going on because I think the dangerous mindset is to think that the world has sort of stopped moving for the year or something, or the fact that we even think, I think I was just talking to someone about this today where it makes me laugh so much when people are just shitting on 2020 so hard (laughs) about being the worst year and all over social media, it's just (laughs) 2020 just ruthlessly chirped. (laughs) And the the idea that I worry about a little bit is January 1st, 2021 (laughs) is not going like we're not going to be entering a new situation that day I know that's something like I don't know if people are remembering this but like we've been saying that since 2016 like 2017 (laughs) we were pissed like there was something every year but totally like it's not like time is made up y'all like it's not like it's just gonna magically get better yeah so you were just talking about not putting a positive spin on things because it's not necessary. And I totally agree with that. And it's been something that I've been trying to kind of find a balance between allowing myself to feel joy, but also allowing myself to feel sadness when that is feeling big for me, which lately it has been. So it's like that balance between ruminating, but also suppressing. Like sometimes I feel Mm -hmm. like I could swing to the side of like, okay, like let's just, you know, buck up and like make the most of it. But then maybe I'm actually (laughs) suppressing some things that Mm -hmm. need uh, attention. So it's really just like moment by moment. You got to just kind of work with your little brain because she's scared. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a good point. And I was just listening to a podcast about, sort of how we treat emotions and the way we think about them. And in the podcast, they talked about how emotions are neurological events, which happen in your whole nervous system. And it's 
an involuntary neurological response. So it's not just like a thought or, you know what I mean? There's something happening in your body. And they were talking about how emotions have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And their metaphor for it was like feelings are tunnels. You have to go all the way through them to get to the light at the end. And I thought that was a helpful way of looking at it because I think there is this delicate balance between regulating your emotions, which I think is really important and a, a good skill. And we we can talk about that a little bit too, versus that suppression or um, that sort of denial of yeah. how we're really feeling and when we're feeling it. And so I like the idea of thinking about it as these are bodily functions that are happening <laughs> that have a meaning. Yeah. And understanding that you can't just simply deny it because there is this course that it needs to run. Yeah. But learning how to lean into it when it's needed and not back away from it, but reframe it when possible, which I think has been – this has been a huge lesson for us all year is that is that balance of wanting to make it through the year in a way where we're not just – like woe is me all year and writing the year off because I think that that's not any way to live. And also wanting to recognize that this is a unique novel situation that we're in and to expect so much from ourselves that like compared to a regular year is just – it's like a ludicrous concept, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm super into the work of – like processing emotions, which sounds so simple, but it's actually pretty wild if you really look into it. It's something that, okay, this will have to be fact-checked, but I (laughs) think it's called somatic experiencing. Um, It's something that my therapist specializes in. And basically it's like going into your body and really paying attention to like physically how emotions are showing up for you. So for me, really often it'll be like, in my face or in my Mm -hmm. jaw or like in certain types of tension. And then Mm. basically like instead of running away because those icky feelings, like that's your brain trying to tell you that it's like there's something that's probably a danger or like it Mm -hmm. thinks that you're in danger. So you need to address it or it's going to keep sounding the alarms (laughs) until Mm -hmm. you turn it off. So basically all of our brains are in the state of fight or flight essentially. Mm And then we try to kind of keep like going about our lives as normal and it just keeps screaming louder and louder. And that's why Mm -hmm. we feel pretty bad, I think, a lot of the time right now. Um, Mm -hmm. What did we hear? I feel like we heard someone call it like it's something to do with the amygdala. So like I think your amygdala is what gets all freaked out (laughs) by things. (laughs) These are the scientific terms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The psychologists are like, "Mm -hmm, yes, freaked Uh out. uh Yes, that is what happens in the scans. It's freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) It's something and this is not going to be, well, it's a bad fact check, but someone was saying that like it's a year of basically like hypervigilance of like the amygdalas. (laughs) (laughs) Amygdala. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You keep my life so interesting with these fact checks what would we do i wouldn't even have a role in the fact check (laughs) happy to help also i was listening to my gal pal brene the other day and she said something kind of along the same lines about like our emotions and i thought it was so interesting she was saying that people often think that 
humans are cognitive, rational beings who yeah. occasionally feel, <laughs> but it's been proven that we are emotional beings who on occasion think. <laughs> and I loved that because I think that's I so it. true. Like we have this desire to approach things with so much objectivity and yeah. we want to be able to look at situations clearly and make the right decision. And you know what I mean? I, yeah. I think that's probably a common experience. That's definitely how I feel often. And so I think the idea of having to surrender to the fact that our emotions drive almost everything yeah. is maybe a better way of approaching certain things so that we don't think we can outsmart them because I yeah. think that's a common way to feel is to want to sort of get ahead of those things or avoid things that we don't want to be feeling. Yeah. And I think the idea of just like those emotions are what's running you, it's not the other way around. And so yeah. I think what we can do is find ways to support ourselves so that we have a little bit more, not control, but uh, – Less resistance, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Me and my control word. I'm <laughs> trying to remove it from my uh, vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that idea of being able to, yeah, uh, decrease the amount of resistance we feel to those things and also just reframe things is so yeah. important. And so – Wait, before you move on, I just yeah. wanted to say two things. Um, okay. One, we're talking about Brene Brown. I know we always refer to her by just her first name. Which is- oh, did I not even <laughs> say it? She's my friend, so. Yeah, just her girl, Brene. Um, just so if anyone that doesn't know and hasn't listened to other episodes where we talk about her, which we always do. And then one other thing that it's kind of reminded me of, and I think this was in the Unfuck Your Brain podcast, which I'm also a huge fan of, um, mm-hmm. but she was talking about how there's this expectation that life is supposed to be all about good feelings and happiness and joy. And the reality is that a lot of life is about suffering and that's the reality of it. But we're kind of walking around <laughs> in this weird idea that we're just supposed to be happy all the time. And I love how Kyla goes into this podcast, goes, we're going to try and keep it light, keep it breezy. And then she's like, life is suffering. <laughs> so that's just the reality. Everyone needs to get on board. It's true, though. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think it can be a really beautiful thing because I think you learn a lot through bad feelings, too. And if we resist them, then we're kind of missing out on learning about ourselves and what we like and need and, you know, how we want to move about the world. Absolutely. And also I think what if we were able to like that discomfort that we feel gets multiplied by the resistance to it. And so the idea of like what would it be like if we didn't multiply the discomfort by resisting it? What if we just embraced it as part of things? And I think that's something that I've been asking myself a lot lately as I go through such an interesting period is like, do you need to fight against the discomfort or can you sit in it and just accept the fact that it's happening? And does that almost in and of itself decrease the amount of suffering that happens? Yeah. And I think a huge part of that too that I've been thinking about is – This year has definitely taught us a lot about how important it is to be flexible and 
dynamic and mm-hmm. recognize that things aren't in our control and that change is inev- inevitable. And a question I've been asking myself too is like, what if your whole identity wasn't at risk when things change? So like, what yeah. if your identity wasn't tied to things so tightly that when things change, it feels like everything is changing? So what if you yeah. can separate that and just the person that you are is someone who goes through changes and goes through discomfort and has these feelings instead of being like, oh, this has now changed. Who am I? <laughs> like that. That's I. That's the type of person I definitely am is I tie myself to a dream or a passion or a job or a person. And then when things change, it's like my whole life gets disrupted. Yeah. And I think for me, a big question that I've been asking myself is just like, what if your whole identity wasn't at risk when things change? What if mm. it just wasn't? So I definitely agree with leaning into the discomfort a bit in whatever that means, whether it's embracing some of the like stranger feelings and learning to sit with them. I think for me, it's a lot about being less avoidant. Something I notice is like when I'm going through a difficult time, I'm so the type of person that like buries myself in my phone or my Netflix or Mm. my exercise routine because it's just like escapism. Like I just would rather not. And so I think for me, it's it's learning to, which is something I talked a lot to a previous therapist of mine about is, is about, it's fine to go for a run to feel better. But I think you, for me at least, I have to question sort of the why behind it. Like, is it like I want to put on music and mute my brain and just run? Yeah. Or is it about I know this run will make me feel better than I currently do and therefore it's a good choice? You know what I mean? For some reason, yeah. there's like a big distinction there for me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in kind of why we do anything is the why behind it is what matters the most. And I definitely do the same thing. I I turn to vices, whatever they are, and that could just be like yeah, I'm watching a lot of Netflix, whatever, like the whole like numbing feeling. And it's not inherently bad to want to veg out. Like there's nothing wrong with that unless you're doing it to avoid addressing the fact that you feel like trash. (laughs) Uh, One tool I actually have found that has been really helpful for sorting through kind of these times when I just have a lot of kind of like it's always, I always say, I just feel weird. Like that's always been my Mm -hmm. thing when I can't figure out what I'm feeling. It's because I feel weird. And that usually means like, okay, let's sort through some things. And I talked about this in a previous episode, but I'm still doing that um, expressive journaling practice. So Mm -hmm. basically I'll have a prompt and it's still, I'm still using um, like, just tell the truth. And usually I'll just kind of like stream of consciousness, right. For like 15 minutes and usually this it'll come out like my big feelings like mm-hmm. tonight I just did it before this podcast because I was in such a weird mood and I just found out like yeah like I'm sad because I can't see my family over the holidays and that's a super normal thing to be feeling but for some reason all day I was like oh I don't know why I feel yeah. so weird it's <laughs> like okay duh <laughs> yeah I think it's so valuable to be able to break it down in like a super granular way because 
even for me, when I hear people say things like like what we were just saying, even about discomfort and things like that, I'm like, well, what does that really mean? And what does discomfort feel like? Is that being sad? Is it – you know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. even when I'm reading a book that's about oh, like a self-helpy type book, <laughs> sometimes it's – a lot of the terminology is very – can I say woo-woo? Is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure what that term comes from, but like f- very floaty vibes where sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I, I am reading it and I'm like, yes, definitely. And I'm also <laughs> like, what does this mean in regards to me? Yeah. And one thing I saw just yesterday or something was a friend of mine posted that she had that feeling. She felt like there was ants in her veins like in an anxious way like felt like kind of like your skin is crawling which I think is a normal but there's something about putting it in such a like a funny literal sense where I think that's a helpful way and that's something that journaling helps with too is just getting things down on paper in a very just like whatever comes to mind literal all of that is sometimes having those cues of a physical feeling or even for me, the recognizing the avoidant behaviors where I'm Mm -hmm. like, my screen time notification is just like a giant slap in the face (laughs) where it's sometimes you need these super tangible ways of recognizing that, okay, I'm feeling discomfort and this is what's happening because otherwise I just think it's hard to recognize. I don't think people often get to a point where they're just like so self-aware that uh, they get a tingle and they're like, this is what it is. So I I think people have different tools, but I liked the idea of uh, like, I've heard people talk about giving these feelings names or Mm -hmm. even that like literal descriptor of the way your skin feels or the journaling out just like everything that comes to mind I think are great tips on ways to like name it so that you can identify it yeah and that's probably super different from person to person Mm -hmm. too that's a good idea though just kind of like writing down if you're in a bit of a funk like what are you physically feeling like I know mine often is like I'll feel really scattered and like I can't pay attention Mm -hmm. and I'll feel irritable usually and I'm not a very Mm -hmm. like I love being around people and and once I get like snappy usually it's like okay like (laughs) something's going on here me too that's a big one for me is irritability is just like my patience becomes non-existent yeah and that's when I'm just like what is this what do I need to recharge whatever battery is depleted because this is odd behavior yeah yeah, it's hard. So I think that a part of being able to name and identify those feelings is sort of leading into the ability to potentially regulate or address them. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about emotional regulation, I think that the most important piece is that it's about having the ability to align how you're feeling to how you want to feel. And it's often related to reducing a negative feeling like an anxious state or sadness. But I think it's really important to make the distinction that it's not about turning emotions off. It's more about reining them in. So depending on who you are, I'm the type of person who in my past, I've 
had very muted emotions. And so that's a different side of it where maybe it's about leaning further into them, whereas some people could have heightened emotions where they're wanting to be able to address them when appropriate and be able to feel them without them being overwhelming, I think is a good distinction to make. Yeah, this is like the biggest thing that I have been personally working on with my Mm -hmm. mental health. It's I also tended towards the muted, like suppressed emotion side of the spectrum. And it is kind of it's that tricky process of being able to like notice when you're feeling icky. Like it just sounds so (laughs) simple, Mm -hmm. but it's really like it's so easy to go about your life and just be like, Hmm, like, oh, I'm a little grumpy, but you know, yeah. just kind of ignore it. But it's so important. And you always feel better once you let the emotion run its course. Mm-hmm. I think I, I read somewhere that, fact check this one, but an emotion <laughs> only lasts 90 seconds. Like if you are going through the process of really feeling it and like going through that tunnel. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you don't ever process it, it'll just stick around. Interesting. I think the other part of emotional regulation that's really important that I can relate to is feeling the right emotion for what's going on, like misplaced emotions, I think is something that sometimes happens for me. Like maybe I'm stressed and burnt out and how it shows up is I'm irritable or Mm -hmm. angry. (laughs) We always have to come back to this. Also, I was watching Grey's Anatomy the other day because there's a new season on Netflix and it's the best show. (laughs) And um, Joe in the show is going to like, she's going to therapy essentially. And she meets with her therapist and they are talking about releasing angry in a healthy way because anger inherently on its own is not unhealthy. It's just if Mm -hmm. it's misdirected, it can be. And the therapist has her throw stuffed animals or like balls (laughs) things at a wall. And I think she's like shouting a bit too. And I honestly was stoked because I was like, this is what people need to see is that (laughs) it's not inherently bad. There's good ways to release it. That's why a lot of people like to do like boxing and different things like that. And so I just thought it was a funny depiction where I was like, I can relate to this on a deep level. I was like, I need something like this, something a little, well, I feel like I have some outlets for it, but that was just a funny one where I was like, my neighbor is probably not stoked on this concept, but <laughs> something to consider in the future. But I think the point I was trying to make originally is that learning for me has been a big part of like those misplaced emotions. And even just understanding like if I'm upset with someone because something has happened, also learning not to like transfer that to the person closest to me or things like that. Because I think that can happen to us where we get worried about work or anxious about this and we need an outlet and sometimes it's misplaced. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. totally. So a big part of emotional regulation when I was reading about it is about creating psychological distance from things. So I thought this was super interesting. So it talks about how when a friend comes to you for advice, a friend, a coworker, a family member maybe, 
and they come to you for advice and they're like, this thing is happening. What do I do? And for them, it's like a big life thing. Okay. And when they're asking you for advice, it's often quite easy for us to coach someone through that and be quite objective in it yeah. um, because you have psychological distance from the problem. And so mm-hmm. – I think it probably depends. I'm sure that there are times when friends reach out to us and it's like triggering and we can't be emotionally objective. But it's in in general, it's typical that when it's someone else having an issue, it's easier for us to maintain like a sense of objectivity because of that psychological distance and be able to give sound advice because we're not so emotionally invested in it. Right. And so – language plays a huge role in the way that we think about things. And so they've done these studies about how people can use language as a tool in order to psychologically distance themselves from their own problems. And so it's so goofy, but what you would essentially do is when we use names and words like you, he, she, they – we're almost exclusively referring to other people because we don't – most people don't talk about themselves in third person. <laughs> okay. And so when we use those words to refer to ourselves, it's like our brain creates psychological distance from it. So they Whoa. literally say that if you go, like, Kelsey, you are going to get through this. <laughs> Kelsey, you can handle this. <laughs> those types of oh, things. Yeah. Almost like you're giving – someone else advice but it's actually you and they were even saying that there's power there's like a- added oomph by doing it out loud <laughs> these are again the psychological terms in the study oh, yeah. that said oomph um, okay good <laughs> so saying things like kelsey you're going to get through this maybe even if i was having a lot of anxiety about covid being like kelsey you're going to be okay um you can handle this, those types of things. Right. What it does is it sort of tricks your brain into thinking that you're psychologically distanced from what's going on and you're almost able to give yourself, not almost able, according to them, able to give yourself sounder advice that actually can help you calm down or release anxiety, things like that. Whoa. Man, (laughs) brains are so weird. I love the idea of being able to trick it a bit. I know. The fact that you can like learn this thing with your brain and then trick your brain with it, like I don't understand. It's It's a little simulation-y. I know. I'm confused. (laughs) It's like a little bit of an error in the software to be able to be like, Kelsey, you're fine. It's fine, Kelsey. (laughs) Your brain's like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) Am I? Okay, never mind. I'll get turn off anxiety. So stupid. <laughs> Do better, brain. So I thought that was super interesting. And I know some of that stuff <laughs> feels really silly, but I just think a good time to maybe use something like that would be in maybe like a thought spiral where you can yeah. tell it's irrational. You can tell that it's getting away from you. Right. Being able to just pause and out loud be like, Kelsey, it's okay. You're huh. going to get through this. I I don't know. Maybe I'll try it next time I haven't experimented it with or I haven't experimented with it myself, but um I'll definitely include the study if people are like <laughs> I'm not convinced. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try that. I was having some 
like I think kind of spirally moments this past week where I logically knew all of it was a little bit silly, but it was like my body didn't believe me. So maybe I can just trick it next time. (laughs) It's so interesting that you say that about almost like the logic behind it, because another part of that, um, of what I was reading about the uh, psychological distancing was also talking about temporal distancing. And it was talking about when you're in one of those spirals where I think COVID is a great example. Sorry to just really like, we're just not going to let anyone (laughs) escape thinking about COVID today. I'm sorry. I remember early on in this podcast, we were like, we don't want to talk about it because people have had enough. And it's just like, it's been a year. Seven months later, we're like, okay, we got to talk about it. (laughs) So COVID, okay. Um, It was talking about temporal distancing and what I took away from it is essentially like there's also a part of your brain where the more you can think about the logical reasons not to worry, the less you'll worry. And so just being like, it was talking about being like you, the likelihood of you getting it in this way is extremely low. I'm maintaining a safe distance from most people. So the likelihood of me getting it is extremely low. It was them like repeating statements that were factually correct right that would start start to convince yourself like logically it's unlikely type of thing mm-hmm. and i thought that was interesting because sometimes i feel like that would be really difficult because sometimes when you're in that spiral your, your ability to use logic is just like out the window yeah I, my brain but, is so creative when it comes up with it's like well you know what this is gonna happen and then this is gonna happen <laughs> you're gonna be the first person to ever get it through yeah. an air vent in yeah. your building yeah. <laughs> i totally know what you mean so maybe in the fact check i'll provide like a little bit more uh info about that but i just thought that was another interesting side of it around like are we able to use facts as a way to kind of halt the spiral that takes place but you know what I did find worked though when I was kind of in that state of like okay my logically I know this doesn't make any sense my body doesn't seem to believe me I ended up just having a conversation like I was just a little stressed being and then I went to Bo and I was like listen to what my brain is telling me right now and it was basically like you're gonna mess up and lose your job and not be able to get to a new one and then Mm. like it just kept going and going he's like okay like and then he kind of did the reasoning for me and then I, I believed him so yeah (laughs) that worked (laughs) well that is a huge tactic that I feel like even you and I use where I'll just share what I was thinking about which was I was I was afraid to essentially like wrong someone in a way that that's a bad way of putting it but I felt afraid to make a decision that I knew would affect someone else because I was afraid of how they would then see me okay and I was telling Kyla about it, and I was like, I think if Kyla's acting right now, she doesn't know what I'm talking about. I don't but, remember. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, soon maybe I will. <laughs> so I was, t- I was sort of spiraling in that I was like, I can't do this because of this and this. And Kyla was kind of being like, well, well, tell me why. Like, what's going to happen? What are you afraid of happening? Right. Literally, like, what is the thought? And I was like, well, I'm afraid of doing this because I'm afraid that I might run into this person oh, okay, at like yeah, Costco <laughs> and they'll be so mad at me and I don't, they'll give me a dirty look or they'll tell me they hate me. <laughs> it's just like, 
what the hell? First of all, don't have a Costco card. I have no, like, it was so beyond irrational. I was just like, I don't know, Kyla. I'm just, oh I'm scared. God. Okay. But it's oh sometimes so helpful to just be like, where has my mind gone? Like, where have I now arrived that I'm in Costco at line? <laughs> I see this person that I've wronged two years ago. They approach me. They're yelling. <laughs> I'm humiliated. <laughs> my life is terrible. Like, what? Whoa. Back Whoa. up a thousand steps. <laughs> mm, our brains. Such a sweetie. Oh, She's God. such a sweetie. Silly. Silly, silly. <sighs> That is a time where the temporal distancing worked because you were like, okay, let's let's look at the facts here. Yeah, it definitely can help to bring in another party to the situation. Oh, Rain it in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's and in my, it was saying it out loud where I was like, oh my God, what am I talking about? <laughs> but when it's still inside your head, you're like, this is this is a valid concern. Sense, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, brain. I'll watch out. <laughs> I can never leave my house. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Cancel the membership. Oh, um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I think that emotional regulation in that sense has the ability to help us feel what we're feeling but in an appropriate way at the appropriate volume uh and time and things like I think it can even be helpful when you might be in a situation where you're in a professional situation or you're with people who you don't really know and strong emotions are coming up and it's like not safe or it would have it would be frowned upon or something to react in a certain way I think it's even valid to be able to emotionally regulate in those moments too. And I definitely think it's different for everyone, but I do think that being able to even like put a pin in things and come back to it is like a very helpful tactic sometimes because you can't always deal with things in the moment. Something that I used to use in uh, a work setting was like the 24-hour rule, which (laughs) sounds kind of elementary, but (laughs) – it essentially means that when you when something goes wrong, whether there's like a miscommunication or maybe something fully, there was a falling out or something like that. Someone said something that sat not well. Mm-hmm. It essentially calls on you to take time to think about it, take the night, sleep on it, that type of thing. See if it really did bug you or if it was just maybe like a blip. And then if it is still bugging you within that 24-hour window, you essentially schedule time to talk to that person and address it in a way that's non-confrontational and where you're not putting them like in a defensive state. So saying things – it's probably like textbook non-violent communication where it's like, this is what I heard and this is how it felt to me and I just wanted to talk to you because – I've been left feeling this way and I I want to – we would even say things like, I want to maintain this relationship and I want us to have a strong – whatever it is. Yeah. And so therefore, can we we talk about this? Yeah. As opposed to like, you did this yesterday and it was so rude. (laughs) Like, (laughs) not that. But just addressing it in a way where you're able to come in it with like a clear mind but also not let things hang for – longer than they need to. Yeah. I think that 
Well, I haven't gotten my mindfulness plug in lately, so this is going to be my my mindfulness plug. But something that meditating kind of builds the muscle of is mindfulness. And part of mindfulness is being able to notice what you're feeling Mm -hmm. and what that does, like say in a situation, well, basically what it does is you notice, say, okay, I'm angry right now, but then you have a a beat to think, okay, and what do I want to do about that? And that might change depending on what situation you're in. Like something I feel like I've gotten pretty good at if Bo and I are having a disagreement and I have a big reaction, I kind of have the ability now where I definitely didn't in the past to like feel that and address it. You're like, okay, I'm upset. And that's, I'm allowed to feel that way. And I don't think that having a blow up with my partner is really the route that I want to go. So then Mm -hmm. I can kind of choose like how to communicate that or what I want to do about it. But yeah, definitely meditation has been a huge tool in my personal emotional regulation. I'm so glad that we're back to like dragging our partners again because last week was so soft and so I got really got too comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I was getting texts being like, what you said about Ben was so special. I was like, oh God, delete, delete. <laughs> Nobody I'm can like, Ben, don't listen to this one. It's kind of, it's not, it's not important. <laughs> got to keep him on their toes. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's healthy. Um, just kidding. <laughs> so I definitely agree with you. I think for me, how that shows up is like the difference between reacting and responding. Yeah. And I think that plays into plugging a previous episode about boundaries. It's like I, I just had this conversation with Kyla the other day. I'm I should this podcast really makes it seem like I should pay Kyla for her <laughs> emotional energy, but it goes both ways, okay? <laughs> I was talking to her about something and I was like, oh, I was so riled up. I was like <laughs> I was feeling hot in the facial area. I was sweating. Yeah. Classic me emotions. And I was like, what do I do? I don't know how to respond to this. I don't know how, what to do. And I think it's those check-ins where you just have to go, is this, is this worth responding to? What will come of it? How much emotional energy are you going to have to spend engaging with it? It has the, like, has the decision already been made? It's about starting to, for me, that's been a huge learning over the past couple years because I used to be the type of person that was just like, let me drop everything and (laughs) come to be with you. Yeah. And which is uh, okay. But for me, it got to a point where it was like, I needed to take care of myself a little more. (laughs) Mm. So... What was really helpful is to be able to go to take a beat, which is a new, a novel concept for me, and just go like, what will me engaging do? And is it worth it for me? And yeah, just leaning more into the response. And for me, the response was nothing. And that's okay. I think learning for me that you like, I don't need to have an opinion on everything is also a great learning experience. And I think it was so helpful to be able to check in with a friend about it and also just to be able to not engage immediately because I think that that's a mistake, especially for people like me who are maybe more quick-tempered, is to feel an emotion and want to address it. And there's so much value in the pause and the 
the ability to it's almost that ability to psychologically distance from it because in the heat of the yeah. moment it's exactly that like you're you're it, you're heated you're upset it's not logical and so i think the ability to just take that time and formulate how you actually feel about it or if it even warrants anything has been such a good learning for me because I tend to engage whether it's even just like as an empath or a buddy sometimes when I probably didn't need to the situation would work itself out and learning to like draw a line in the sand sometimes is a big part for me of even regulating my emotions in the sense of how much energy can I provide to this situation Yeah, it's something I've been working on too. It's tricky. It's tricky to find the balance between wanting to be there for others and help them sort through things and, you know, showing up for yourself and your own weird little brain. (laughs) Totally. And I think, I mean, we mentioned this before, but I'll say it again because I, my friends do this and it's so beautiful. And if you didn't listen to the episode, I don't even remember which one it is. I think probably the boundaries one. But (laughs) the idea of asking someone if they're – especially when it's like a big thing. Obviously, if it's just like, this is happening. What do I do? That's okay. But I think if it's like a big emotional unload, the the, like courtesy to ask before you do it, I I know it seems kind of weird. I'm sure like the first time I did it, I was kind of (laughs) – feels goofy. (laughs) And I think that when people do it to me, unexplainable gratitude for even the question. And even if I still feel like an obligation to say yes, which I think is human and that's on me, there's something about being asked where I'm just like, oh, it feels magic to just have someone be like, do you have the space to talk to me about this? Do you have the space? I'd love to ask you your advice on this can we talk about this? There's something about being in choice, which it kind of changes everything in my opinion. Totally. We love mutual respect between friends. Yeah. It's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) It's also being in choice is a huge part of how people respond to things because even from like a customer service perspective, (laughs) plug my uh, knowledge here. Um, It's so funny, even when people are angry in a uh, customer service situation, there's so many studies on how giving someone a choice, even things like saying, how does that sound when you offer them a solution or we can find a solution today or if you wanted to take some time to think about it and give me a call back tomorrow, that works as well. It's so simple and it doesn't even really make a difference in terms of like how you move forward, but there's something about giving someone an option where it just changes the dynamic of the conversation. And Hmm. I'm not really sure like what the psychology behind that is, but I think it's so cool that it so simply is able to like people hear that and they're just like, oh, I'm the one making the decisions here. Yeah, interesting. I wonder if that has something to do with like agency. Like people don't yeah. like to feel like they don't have agency in situations. People like, love control. Yeah, we do. <laughs> oh my God. See, silly little brains. <laughs> Tricked them again. I'll have to fact check that a bit about like why 
that makes people feel so good. But I know that for me, a friend did it to me the other day and I was like, wow, I feel just like respected and appreciated. And I, I just, it was such a nice way to approach a conversation. So just to finish it off, I thought we would talk about some of the ways that like we personally cope with stress, some of our <laughs> tricks, tips and tricks. Okay. And yeah, maybe even Kyla, if you want to talk about like what does stress feel like for you? Can you put a can you put an ants in your veins analogy Ooh, to it? Interesting. Okay. I definitely have been struggling quite a bit with stress and anxiety lately. Um for me, I guess weird isn't a good enough descriptor. <laughs> what does weird feel like in your body? But I think I think it's almost like I feel very busy and fast and unfocused. And you know what is actually a check-in for myself is I become really clumsy, which is a weird thing, but it's because I'm not paying attention because I'm too in my own head. So that's always a good kind of check-in. It's like, okay, am I dropping shit? <laughs> Maybe Your stress go- is like you just chugged a Red Bull or something. Exactly. I just start like speeding around like a little weirdo. So Interesting. Clumsy is such an awesome like – it's just such a unique way of being able to recognize like, oh, I'm moving too quickly. I'm not being mindful about it. Yeah, and it, I'm sure yeah. that's such a common thing because it is it is that lack of awareness that causes someone to be clumsy. But to be able to recognize like, oh, I keep like bumping into things. <laughs> it was so wild when I made that connection because I always just thought I was a clumsy person and I just like dropped things. Like sometimes things would just like fall from my hands. <laughs> I was like, like Bella. Isn't that her name? Yeah, from Twilight. (laughs) Walks into door. Quirky little gal. (laughs) Just so relatable. I'm just a clumsy gal. But I would get hurt all the time. So (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, that's a good check-in. And then you're the star of a rom-com. Exactly. I'm just they call it a manic pixie dream girl, I think. Oh. You can fact check that one. (laughs) <laughs> so you said how do I cope is that the question yeah do you have like some go-tos and you already plugged mindfulness so you can just skim right over but I'm just kidding if you want to talk about it you can but yeah maybe like your go-tos whether it's in the moment or like a daily habit that you are in to avoid those feelings getting too big hmm, good question I I think kind of like a little a journaling meditating combo has been working really well mm-hmm. for me lately. Like all that kind of helps to sort through the busyness a mm-hmm. lot better. And then I do find a lot of my stress has to do with the like productivity stuff and mm-hmm. kind of like feeling like my to do list is never ending. So mm-hmm. after that, usually what I'll do is. And this sounds a little bit silly, but it works and also was in an episode of Unfuck Your Brain, but I'll just give myself permission to not do anything for like the rest of the night usually. And I'll, and I'll even communicate that with my partner and mm-hmm. say like, I am giving myself permission to do nothing. And then I just try and chill. Ooh, baths too. I love a good bath. <laughs> I thought you said bats. <laughs> Yo, what? Bats. I love bats. I was so with you and then I was like, nope. <laughs> I don't like bats. <laughs> bath. Here's my thing about baths, actually. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm 
someone who probably like advertises on my Instagram that I love baths and I'm trying so goddamn hard to like them. You don't like baths? What the hell? It's it's either so hot that I'm sweating and I'm like, ew, I'm just sweating in a tub of water. Or it's not hot enough and I'm like, why am I in here? And I always get in and I'm like, oh, I'm going to read my book. And then I just get in there and I'm like, all I can think about is how much I'd rather be in my bed right now. <laughs> I'm dead serious. And I've just okay. wasted so many bath bombs because I'm like, tonight's the night. And then I'm like, lush bath bomb, oh 7.50. And then I'm in there for... 10 minutes tops, maybe 12 minutes. I'm like, I'm out. Whoa. Okay. You, I totally I'm thought a liar. you I know. like baths. I'm also, a liar. It sounds like you have a should around, you should fe- like baths. Like you don't have I to. Wa- no, no. I, wa- <laughs> <laughs> I want to. Ugh, I but want to. <laughs> I want, why do I want to? I don't know. Maybe you want to because you do want to relax, but then you don't. Do you actually like the feeling of being in a bath? Oh, yes. Really? Like that? What temperature are you going in at? I kind of try and go like as hot as I can where it doesn't hurt. And then. But are you sweating? Do you not sweat? Uh, Maybe. It doesn't really matter though. I'm already in the water. Well, it matters if my face is sweating and I'm sitting in a tub. Why? I don't have anywhere to be. (laughs) No, just. Not for aesthetics, for discomfort. I don't want to be like oh. leaking sweat out my face. I don't know. I think I I'm just enjoy that sensation. <laughs> I'm probably just a sweatier person than you, so I'm just used to it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard to to be, to be a bath person. I think it probably it it probably does have something to do with like I want to be able to do it because I want to be able to sit still okay. and a bath is like you can't do anything but like sit there and read which is a good <laughs> thing but I do really struggle because I just get in and I'm like it's just I just am not the feeling I don't really like hot tubs either for that reason like okay. I love to swim and we, we've we've gone well, over we this the people this. know yeah. I love to swim in cold water and I like a cold shower too I'm not really like a hot water gal oh okay that's fine (laughs) maybe I don't like to be hot in temperature you're always cold though anyways we're getting too into this what are your what is your episode is about hot water (laughs) (laughs) um wait your your aunt feeling and your coping tools mm, okay I how do I feel when I'm anxious and stressed? I feel definitely like I have so much to get done in my head that I can't even start. Like I don't even know what to start with because there's too much. Like right. my ability to take it one step at a time kind of like yeah. flies out the window when I'm super stressed. And I think I do feel a little bit like maybe not ants in my veins, but a little bit like ants in my pants. Like I <laughs> am jittery. Okay. Almost like that feeling of like I drank too much coffee, but I didn't. Maybe you, you did. I was <laughs> always on me about my coffee intake. I'm reading a book right now that talks about that, it how it works, and I'll have to fact check this, but okay. they did a study and the more coffee you drink in a day from one cup to seven cups, 
from one, two, three, four, as you incline in cups, incline is not the right word, as you <laughs> increase. increase in cups, <laughs> as you go up the mountain in cups, you live longer. But when you hit eight cups, then you start to see a decrease in what? longevity. Okay. I need to see a source yeah. on that one. Second sister. But I was like, I sometimes feel guilty when I hit that second cup. And now I'm like seven, baby. That's my limit. Oh my okay. Let's get a so also that would be so expensive. Even if you were making it at home, seven coffees a day. Um so that, <laughs> I would say that's how I feel. It's like sort of like jumpy and definitely it makes me pretty irritable, I think. Like I just don't have very much patience when I'm in those states. I'm also the type of person that when I get stressed, I get hot, which is sort of what we were talking about. But like I get oh, flushed. Like I get yeah. red, red hot neck and cheeks sometimes. It's very mm-hmm. – like me in an interview, I remember one time interviewing for a job and I was wearing like – a scoop neck and a blazer and I at the interview I felt like went really good but I was like quite stressed and nervous and I walked out and I went to the bathroom and it's like the biggest tell-all because my chest is just like blotches giant blotches up my neck and the interviewer was probably just like is this chick okay like she's having an allergic reaction to it and it's just like no she's stressed she's stressed so it's like such a it's so obvious it shows really it shows up on my skin I would say that's only when I'm like that's like quite nervous energy so that's not like an everyday occurrence but definitely in those like higher stress situations that happens how I cope, uh, if I haven't exercised in a day and I'm feeling that way, then I'm just like, yo, you did this to yourself. Like you need to get out and move and then we'll re- reassess how it's going. For me, I think a huge part of it is I definitely am like a big advocate of sleeping. Like I have a pretty healthy relationship with sleep. I have been described as being like a little narcoleptic, but I think that if I I know, sorry, that if I didn't sleep properly, that would be like my biggest thing I would tackle yeah. because even on the odd time where I don't get anywhere from like seven and a half to eight hours, like my functioning capacity is just non-existent. Uh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Those are huge. Yeah. And then I think like therapy is a huge part of it for me. And I also get a lot of joy from just and like a lot of coping from the people in my life and hobbies. I like to do the things that I think are fun. Cooking for me is a big one. Yeah. It's good to have, like, obviously this kind of stuff will be different for everybody, but it's good to have your own, almost like a personal checklist to go through. And I think, I think this is something that Dax Shepard said on Armchair Expert once. Mm -hmm. It's like, if he's feeling funky in any way, he'll kind of go through the checklist of like, have I slept? Have I ate? Have I worked out? Have I whatever? Mm -hmm. And whatever that is to you. And I have that too with the the tracking app that I do, um, Dealio. Usually if I'm feeling not great, it's because I haven't done mm-hmm. a lot of things. So it's a pretty easy way to just kind of like do a couple things and then see how you feel and, you know, take it step by step. But usually totally. it'll help. And I think it's that even trackers or journals or things like that, it can get – it can be really hard to get into a habit of that because it's – it is that – 
ability to remember to do it and things like that. I have a habit tracker taped to my fridge because if it was in my phone or in a notebook, I would do it for three days and then I'd be like, I forgot. And so if it's somewhere central where I can just see it, I'm like, literally it works like a checklist for me. It'll be like, have I done headspace today? Have I journaled? Have I gone outside is on it? Like get, like leave your apartment. (laughs) Like it's things like that where I'm like, even if it's just like to go on my balcony, like breathe air outside of your apartment is important. And so I think what it's helpful for me is then I start to recognize when things are going haywire. Like for me, when I'm really stressed, I also just lose my appetite. And so if I look at if it's like midday and I haven't haven't eaten or I'm like not interested in food, I think it's really important to then go like, oh, I, something's gone haywire here. I need to reassess. I think being able to recognize patterns is a big part of going, okay, now how do I – essentially like how do I treat this now that I've diagnosed that I'm in yeah. a state right now that needs this or that to come help me come out of it? Yeah, totally. Wow. Now everyone's going to know when I post like a bath Instagram story <laughs> that I'm a liar. God damn it. Cut it well, out. Maybe you don't need to take baths. I really now. want Lush to like sponsor me or something. So <laughs> they're not going to now. She <sighs> hates baths. I'm going to have to like Google how to how to draw the perfect bath. Oh my God. I'll okay. get my thermometer out. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll take an ice bath. Oh, good. Yeah, that sounds nice. That's natural. (laughs) Okay. Is there anything else? (laughs) I don't think so. That's all. Okay. I feel better. How about you? Me too. (laughs) I feel like in our goal to maintain levity, I felt like I laughed a lot. So that's always nice. Me too. Thanks for being my therapist this evening. (laughs) (laughs) Same to you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hello. Hello. (laughs) What's that? Time for a little fact check. I was just saying to Kyla before we started that uh, it's a bit of a banger of a fact check tonight because (laughs) we were really uh, running our mouths about things we don't quite have a firm grasp on. (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) I also just think it's so ironic that right before this, I took a bath and I just was like laughing at myself because I was about to post an Instagram and I was like... (laughs) This is probably the last Instagram story I can post of this without getting feedback about it. Oh my god. Did you enjoy your bath? No, of course not. <laughs> I get so I Googled like how to what how to have the perfect bath, kind of. Oh my god. Because I'm I was just curious, like maybe I'm doing something wrong and like okay. you know, more to it. Sure. And it said you should run it as hot as possible, essentially, for like yeah. the first part put in like your bath salts or whatever let them dissolve sure and then gradually add cold water until it's a temperature that's like quite hot like almost unbearable yeah 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 and then get in and then like it will just cool down from there which I guess is just sort of basic science I'm describing (laughs) and so I did that and I like was all set up I lit my breeze wax candle this is a breeze wax candle plug (laughs) Um, had my book, everything, and I literally, by the time I turned the water off, I probably sat in there for seven and a half, eight minutes. Oh my god! I washed my face, and then I was just like, "This isn't it." I can have like a two-hour bath easy. 
Oh my god, my legs are like beet red because it's so warm. And I'm just like, I don't ever want to be that temperature. Oh my god. Okay, well, you don't have to. You don't have to. It it served a purpose as like I, you know, I wash my face and stuff. So like it 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 was okay in that regard. But (laughs) sure. Okay. All right. Check some facts. (laughs) Um okay, so you talk about somatic experiencing. Oh and you (laughs) (laughs) let me hear it (laughs) yeah okay so you say it's about going into your body and paying attention to how emotions are coming up for you so somatic experiencing is a form of alternative therapy okay so i got the name (laughs) yep oh yeah it's definitely a thing and you're not wrong it's just good there's a little it's a little bit more (laughs) scientific all right let me hear it (laughs) so the intention behind it is to it's usually used to relieve the symptoms of ptsd but it can also be used for like other mental and physical trauma um and like trauma related health problems and things like that and so it essentially focuses on the client's perceived body sensations, which are like somatic experiences. Yeah. And it was developed by Peter Levine, which I feel like is <gasps> someone that you talk about a Peter lot. Peter Levine. Yeah, he is in Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. Because when I saw that name, I was like, oh, this checks out because I feel like you've mentioned him to me before. Okay, nice. (laughs) And just some context on them. Like sessions are normally done in person and involve a client tracking their own experiences in attempts to promote awareness and release physical tension that remains in the aftermath of a trauma. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I said. (laughs) It is sort of what you're saying around like going into your body and feeling your feelings. I think it's just like it's typically done under supervision by a trained professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do this at therapy. Like, I think yeah. it can be also, like, it's a dicey thing because I think it can, like, re-traumatize. Like, you definitely want to be doing it with a trained professional. Um, But that's what I meant. <laughs> it was that exact thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely something that should be done with a professional and also someone who's, like, certified in the ability to do that. Just like as a side note, that's one thing I'm learning a lot about right now. One of the courses I'm taking is around when you go see a professional, which I know we advocate for a lot, and hopefully um, one day maybe we'll even do an episode about like how to approach that and things like that. The one thing I've learned so far is like going into any sort of therapy situation, I would always ask them where where they went to school and if they have a master's degree. In order for someone to be like a certified therapist, they should have a master's degree in a related field. <laughs> and obviously, if someone has a PhD or an MD, then they're typically a psychologist or a psychiatrist at that point. But just be careful because the term counselor is notoriously unregulated in BC. So it's not weird to ask someone that question. They are should be primed to be hearing that question. So just protect yourself because it's a little bit different than obviously like a dentist would hang it on the wall. And that's not really the case with counselors. And obviously, if you meet someone who you're really jiving with, then maybe it doesn't matter to you. But I think that's really important, especially if you're doing things like what we're talking about yeah. that are that you really need someone who knows how to tackle that situation. You don't want to be put in a situation where someone isn't equipped to deal with what comes up. Yeah, that's some very good advice. Thanks. Okay. A little brief piece of advice. <laughs> it's just I've been doing like little studies in my course on 
when it goes wrong. And so I'm very oh. heightened right now. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. You mentioned the hypervigilance of the amygdala. <laughs> and so you were kind of talking about how like COVID is the year where our amygdalas are kind of like out of whack, I think is the context. <laughs> <laughs> and you were kind of talking about like high amygdala hijacks. Uh, so, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so such little confidence in that statement. You're like, I don't know. Oh, did I? Oh, <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Um, so chronic stress, which we were talking about in this episode, and something that a lot of people are experiencing this year, because if you've been stressed since the beginning of COVID, like that's chronic, that's a long time, <laughs> can lead to overactive fear and anxiety circuit in your brain, meaning that you can trigger frequent amygdala hijacks, which is essentially like how they describe an amygdala hijack <laughs> is like you not even an overreaction, but a react an emotional reaction that way outweighs the like what the proportion is to the event that happened. Right. So like Kyla drops something of mine in my house and I like lose my mind or something <laughs> as opposed to just being like, oh no, is an example of like P- and obviously it's much more heightened for people with like PTSD, which would be an example where like very small things can trigger quite a, an emotional response. So that's what an amygdala hijack is. It's like when a pathway has kind of gone haywire and so the response is much more explosive than it should be. Okay. But essentially to prevent this from happening, you part of it is just having like a, a high level of emotional intelligence, like a high EQ. <sighs> And yeah, done. Um, And the ability to understand and manage your emotions because essentially then you can learn to like de-escalate your own emotions by paying attention to them, which is a lot to do with mindfulness as well. Hell yeah. So yeah, I think that sort of – it's like the pathway gets used too much and then it becomes easier to access and then it gets accessed inappropriately. Mm. And that that is what you were kind of talking about is that like we're putting so much pressure on this – part of our brain that things are going to go haywire from it, which I think we will see that happen. Right. <laughs> You're giving me a lot of credit. I love – you're really, like, reaching for me. <laughs> That's what you meant, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, also, I refer to the plural of amygdala as amygdalae. <laughs> it's amygdalae, so L-A-E. Oh, okay. Just wanted to correct myself there. Cool. <laughs> um. You say that an emotion lasts 90 seconds. So according to neuroscientist Jill Bolt-Taylor, the physiological lifespan of an emotion in the body and the brain is 90 seconds. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, I totally pulled that out of my ass. <laughs> I honestly – you can even tell when you listen to the episode. I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> Not convinced. But that's true. And essentially what it means is like the sensations, the adrenaline, the heat in your face, the tightness in your throat, all of that stuff arises, peaks, and dissipates in 90 seconds. But what keeps emotions lingering for longer are the stories we tell ourselves about them. So Mm -hmm. we're wired to create stories about them. That's like what keeps us alive. And we're also wired with a negativity bias, which we've talked about in previous episodes, which (sighs) – is essentially like when we had ancestors who were, you know, 
in a very different life, it would alert you to threats. But often threats these days are like traffic, which isn't really a threat. And so when you're used to feeling that way, the neural pathway, it's sort of kind of like what we're just talking about, the neural pathway that corresponds to like your sad, angry, anxious emotions gets strengthened and they refer to it as like a brain superhighway. And so it becomes much easier for those emotions to become triggered. So oh. same similar idea, but totally right on the 92nd fret. Poor little brains. They're just <laughs> so overwhelmed. <laughs> this episode should just be a, like the essentially all we talked about is how brains like aren't as smart as we give them credit for. So silly. Silly little Easy brain. to trick them. <laughs> yeah. We talk about psychological distance. I do. I talk about psychological distancing and temporal distancing, which it was about me saying like you talk about yourself in third person and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I just want to you know make it a little bit more correct than it was so the psychological distance I was kind of talking about self-distancing so you remove yourself from like your egocentric perspective when assessing events and emotions and there's like a super famous example that I heard both in the podcast I listened to and in an article I found later where someone was (laughs) asking pop culture here (laughs) also like I have no idea what team LeBron James I don't know what teams he was choosing between and I'm sure that that's deeply frowned upon but (laughs) I I can't help you either apparently (laughs) he was choosing making a decision about what team he wanted to play for and they were interviewing him and asking him about it and he said out loud I didn't want to make an emotional decision I wanted to do what was best for LeBron James and what would make him happy and they keep using this example but it's based on a theory called control level theory, which suggests that kind of like what I was talking about, you can create distance by changing the language around it. And so they've studied that when you refer to yourself either by like she, they, he, or by Kelsey or whatever your name is, that they're able to improve your ability to detach emotionally from the situation and make a more logical decision. Huh. So LeBron, LeBron is just the example, but um, just, you know, what would LeBron do? Exactly. <laughs> and then temporal distancing, which I didn't really have a good explanation for, is essentially the concept that as humans, we have the ability to sort of like mentally time travel so we can <laughs> uh, we can imagine <laughs> our future mm-hmm. and adopt a near future perspective. So like when we're thinking about this coming week, it's quite specific. Like we have a very specific idea of like how many hours we'll spend doing this or that. And like if I can make plans for Friday night, things like that. Whereas when we talk about like years in the future, it's much more abstract. And so it's like they did this study where they asked students like how many hours a week they would spend studying, working out, hanging out with friends, things like that. And when they were talking about it in the near future, it was much more realistic because they were able to able to conceptualize like, I only have so many hours and if I spend more time working out, I'll spend less time studying, etc. Whereas when they talked about years out, people would be like, I'm going to spend so much time in the gym. I'm going <laughs> to study so hard to the point of it being unrealistic because you just don't have as good of a like handle on it. Huh. And so the reason why this is relevant to like COVID and stress and things like that is because people might say to themselves like, how am I going to survive not leaving my house for who knows how many weeks? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And to use temporal distancing would be to put things in perspective and go like, 
one day I'll be telling my grandchildren about the pandemic of 2020. I'll describe what it was like for kids to do distance learning, for families to be together 24-7. I'll explain how I was very worried, and then I'll talk about how we made it through, which is just an example. Oh, <laughs> but- my God. Why does that freak me out so much? <laughs> But the point is, is that like by thinking about it in that way, it doesn't diminish like the urgency of it, but it makes it clear that it's just temporary. Um, And so it helps us keep hope and also keep anxiety at bay. And so that was what I was getting at when I was talking about that. But this is from an article that I'll link as well that's described sort of how to think about it in your brain so that you can both understand it's it's very intense and scary and also it's temporary type thing. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so to give do you want to give context as to so we talk we make a joke about Bella and Twilight and the joke is that Kyla talks about how she's clumsy <laughs> and Kyla is the one who told me this about how Bella in if you go back and watch Twilight <laughs> Bella just like walks into doors and stuff. What do you want me to fact check on this? <laughs> I just yeah. I mean, I don't know if you need an activity sometime just watch Twilight and how they try to like depict that she's clumsy. It's just so funny. I think she like runs into a car door at one point, but it's like <laughs> It's very confusing, like, because they don't say she's clumsy. They're just trying to, like, demonstrate. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. (laughs) So when we're (laughs) laughing about that, that's what it's about. And then that led us into a conversation where you said, oh, the manic pixie dream girl, which is absolutely a thing. And it's called an MPDG is what they call it for sure. And it's very controversial. Controversial. So... The like OG MPDG is Kirsten Dunst in Elizabeth Town okay. because she, because and I quote she has no discernible inner life and just exists to provide the protagonist some important life lessons. Okay, but it's controversial because the quirky gals who play these roles don't all want to be like clumped in together. Okay. So there's some some heat in this debate, but it's essentially just like, from what I can tell, it's like a stock character type, like just a classic go-to clumsy girl who like doesn't really have a character to her or any real personality. She's just like teaching the guy in the movie to like loosen up a bit or you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There are a bunch <laughs> of examples of them. The other one is Natalie Portman in um, Natalie po- uh, Garden State. Oh, <laughs> which I feel like is a is a similar to um, uh, Elizabeth Town and being like sort of a cult classic. But Natalie Portman in Garden State is considered like an example of it. And Catherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby, which came out in 1938. So okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'd be Good familiar. <laughs> but then there are like a bunch of counterexamples and criticism. It's kind of like the Zo- it's kind of like the Zoe Deschanel thing, except that Zoe Deschanel's has a she has a personality obviously but like the whole persona is sort of that isn't it Hmm. i don't know i didn't mean to bring up such a controversial topic (laughs) i think it's controversial like relative to like film buffs yeah okay my last fact is about my coffee statement so i have my my book here (laughs) okay coffee so i essentially made a claim that 
the more coffee you drink up to seven cups a day, the longer you live. And then once you hit eight, then things start deteriorating. Die. Okay. (laughs) You die on the spot. (laughs) Drinking lots of coffee is associated with a longer life. The effect is relatively modest. People who drank six or more cups per day had a 10 to 15% lower mortality rate due to fewer deaths from heart disease, respiratory disease, stroke, injuries, accidents, diabetes, infections. Drinking more than six, oh, damn it, it's six. Uh-oh. Drinking more than six cups of coffee daily was found to increase the risk of death. Hence, it may be appropriate to recommend that younger people in particular avoid heavy coffee consumption less than 28 cups per week or less than four cups in a typical day. Okay, so. I kind of mangled it a bit. But. Who funded that study? Was it like the coffee association of like, also America. like how much would someone have to pay you to do a study where you had to drink eight cups of coffee a day because that would ruin my actual life like and then what happens do they like what are they tracking like is it their whole lives and then these people oh are dying God. like how did this study work i have questions how dare you ask me so many questions <laughs> like this i have doubts i just i, I don't know I obviously don't have that information just right off the bat, but there are some, uh, you know, the little tiny numbers that I yes. assume lead me to a index Sources. in the back. So maybe I'll include it online. Oh God, I'm suspicious. So the point of that is, is that the next time, you know, I drink like a 4 p.m. coffee and it irks you, you should just keep it to yourself because I'm prolonging my life, which just means more time together. And that's... You should be grateful for that. Well, I don't drink coffee, so I'm going to die, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's tough. I don't know what to tell you about that. Okay. Well, (laughs) anything else? Nope, that's it. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 